As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Happy Friday. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we'll discuss Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert. Both players got the call to Seattle this week, and both will have made their debuts on Thursday night by the time anybody gets to hear this podcast. We'll <laughs> talk about the level of concern in Minnesota. The Twins are 12-22 and 22 entering play on Thursday. A lot of injuries piling up there. We'll talk about Khalil Lee, who's getting at least a brief opportunity with the Mets, and we'll get to a few changes on Keith's most updated set of rankings for the upcoming MLB draft. Upcoming as in July. It's getting closer. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting there. So we're excited for that. So a lot of ground to cover here, Keith. Uh, but Jared Kelnick, the headliner for the week, he is up already. He didn't have any difficulty in his very brief time at AAA. And I, I hope the Mariners learned a lot more about him as a player during his time in Tacoma this year. <laughs> Do I detect a hint of sarcasm there, Derek? Just a little. Yes. Uh, did you get the notes that Kevin Mather sent over for us to use for today's podcast? <laughs> I have them right here. If I could just forward them to you. They forgot to yeah. take them off the email list? Yes. They're the mo- this is so transparent. And there's, the thing is, there's nothing anyone can do. I mean, I suppose that Kalanick and his agent could take Kevin Mather's comments and try to file a grievance. But as far as I know, no one's actually won a grievance over service time manipulation for a player who's never been in the majors before. You, there have been cases of teams trying to run guys up and down and to, you know, to try to limit their service time or even just to not give them service time, maybe if they were sent out and recalled to, before the 10 days were up as an injury replacement. So people have argued, no, we should get back those four days of missing service. Like those you can get. Those grievances have some history of success. But my guess is Kalanick's, Kalanick's agent should file a grievance. He should make a huge stink about it. And he's probably not going to win. And even though we can all look at this and say it's the, uh, oh my gosh, is it Justice Powell, right? I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. That's service time manipulation. I see it. I know that's service time manipulation. It's right there. Uh, 
it's too bad. It's too bad. I still hope the next CBA will do something to try to dissuade teams from doing so. But the there is part of the problem is that the Mariners, as non-contenders this year, the argument for them to have brought Kellenic to the big leagues earlier is not as strong. It's not like a team that's going to be fighting for every win to get to the playoffs. Even if this was the Angels, for example, where the Angels are trying, it's, it's always just get to the playoffs with Trout. Get Trout back into the playoffs. Every single win might matter. And having Jared Kalanick up a couple weeks earlier might actually make a difference to your playoff odds. Uh, that doesn't apply to the Mariners. And so we can and should criticize them for a labor practice that I would consider mildly exploitative. But at the same time, if I'm Jerry DePoto or his boss, I'm saying, yeah, it's a little sketchy. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's just the way the system is built at this mm-hmm. point. Kelnick as a player is interesting for a few reasons. I mean, the tools are fantastic by all accounts. Mm-hmm. He's going to be a very good player for a very long period of time. But he comes from a place that's not necessarily a hotbed for baseball talent. He went to high school in the same city where I went to high school. Waukesha, ah. Wisconsin. There's not a lot of big league talent coming out of that you? area. Hello? Yeah, they, uh, the scouts didn't come watch me. I was going to say, did we just whiff? Complete whiff on me, yeah. Ugh. Dang. I think with Kelnick, I mean, he was a headliner in a big trade. And of course, because that was a dumb trade for the Mets, he's got extra attention <laughs> over the years. And that's kind of helped fuel the hype to even higher levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like looking at projections for players who haven't played in the big leagues yet in a way because they sort of ground our expectations a little bit. I think they're the least accurate projections you could possibly have, which is not to, I'm not disparaging the numbers. It's just really hard to project players without major league inputs going in. There's less information to utilize in the engine. So, you know, when I see a good projection system that I like spit out a 235, 298, 418 line for a guy like Kelnick, my first thought is, oh, he's going over all those numbers. But we got plenty of cautionary tales of really good players who didn't hit the ground running in the big league. So as you've evaluated Kelnick, what do you see from him initially? How much success do you think he can have from the jump as one of the game's most big league ready prospects? I mean, I'm I'm a believer. I have I've long been a Kelnick guy. I had him sixth on my draft board that year, uh, and he was sixth overall pick, as it turns out. And I've ranked him pretty highly ever since he first was able to appear on my pro rankings. And I think he's going to be a superstar. I will say two notes of caution. One is just that I mean, even even Mike Trout in his first 100 at-bats in the big leagues wasn't that great. I mean, enough that the Angels sent him down. And I could tell it really wrecked him too. He's just, he's never really quite <laughs> recovered from that. Uh, imagine how much better he'd be if they hadn't done that. The uh, the other thing is the one note I've gotten a little bit on Kalanick this year is that he's I always thought he had a chance to stay in center. I thought he'd be great in right because he could really throw and he moves so well and he's above average. He might get a plus run time out of him. I've never gotten better than that. But I thought he might be able to stay in center. And a couple people have come back to me and said he's not going to be a center fielder. He's going to end up in right. And that's fine. I, I still think he's going to be a superstar because I think he's going to hit, get on base, and hit for power. I just think he's. He has everything you could want in a hitter and frankly, in a position player other than maybe the ability to play in the middle of the diamond, but he's really athletic and he's strong and he's pretty quick and he checks a lot of those boxes. But I also would not be surprised then if he comes up and the Mariners maybe move him around the outfield a little bit and try to figure out what is the best spot for him. And hey, if he plays some center field and he doesn't look great right out of the jump, well, Hey, I heard this too. Maybe that's not going to be his his position long term, or maybe he needs more time to continue to learn uh, 
whichever position in the outfield uh, the Mariners choose to leave him at. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard. People always say, what do you think this player is going to do? He's getting called up. What do you think this player is going to do? I get that from readers all the time. Truth is, I, I don't know. I can tell you, I think over the next six years, six years and five-sixths, right? Um, <laughs> I think he's going to be a superstar. I think he'll be the best player on the Mariners. I think he's going to met, make Met fans cry a lot more than usual. But I he could stink right away, right? That's just entirely – look at what Vlad Guerrero did the first two years, right? I was absolutely in the camp where I said that this kid's going to hit. You know, he's got – there's other question marks, but that kid was just born to hit. He can fall out of bed and hit 300, and he fell out of bed, and he didn't hit 300 or anything close to it. And it took until essentially year three before – we saw the Vlad Guerrero Jr. we were expecting to see. So, you know, don't don't bail on Kalanick if he's not great right away. And if he is great right away, awesome. Maybe he's just one of those guys. But if there's some way for us to to discern which elite prospect is going to hit the moment he gets to the big leagues and which one isn't, I, I haven't figured it out. And I, I don't. I honestly don't think anybody else has either. No, I don't think anyone has even come close. And I think you know Juan Soto is a great example of this, a guy that comes up and no one expected him to play in the big leagues back in 2018. They had a bunch of injuries that year. And he comes up and hits 292 with a 406 OBP and a 517 slugging percentage over 116 games. Like That's unheard of. Like Players doing that, that is the outlier. Bryce Harper doing what he did when he arrived in the big leagues. That is well above expectations for even the very best prospects. So uh, mm-hmm. as excited as I am to watch Kelnick, I would say the Mariners are so much more watchable with him and Gilbert pitching every fifth day than they were just a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll actually tune in and, and watch them on more than an occasional basis now. Uh, let's talk about Gilbert for a second, though, because he's had really no issues in the minor leagues either. I mean, level to level, he's been as good as anybody in the last three years in the minors. Four pitches with command. Uh, what more could you ask for in a guy that maybe has the ceiling of being a frontline guy down the road? Yeah, he's. I don't know that I think he's a. Like, I don't think he's a one. I don't think he's an ace. I think he's an above average starter for a very long time. I put him. I sort of. There's. There's two types of top end pitching prospects in my mind. One is the guy. The Casey Mize type, where you look and you say, that guy's got at least one. He might have two real swing and miss pitches and throws strikes and looks like he's going to when you know, maybe maybe he's not 100% healthy. Maybe he's not handling 200-something innings a year. Not that anybody ever does that anymore. You know, excuse me while I do my old man yells at cloud routine here. <laughs> but, you know, Mize was the first pick in his draft class because he looked like he was going to be an ace. The other type of really good sort of elite pitching prospect and guys I tend to really like is guy with, with above average ceiling, not a fourth starter, but also he just looks like he'll be really steady and consistent and probably will soak up a lot of innings because he throws so many strikes and it's a lot of 55s on his scouting report, but maybe there's not a, an absolute swing and miss pitch. And to me, that's Gilbert is very he's almost an exemplar of the second category. And Gilbert's stuff does play up to you because hitters don't see the ball well out of his hands. That was true all the way back in college. I saw him his senior uh, junior year, sorry, his draft year. He'd had mono and had not really talked about it very much, so his weight was down. He never really got all his velocity back. So I saw him, I think he was 8992. It was a 40 degree day, Stringer Bell, 40 degree day. <laughs> 
in Newark, <laughs> New Jersey at NJIT, uh, and he just absolutely dominated. NJIT wasn't very good, but also you could see too, the, they were swinging so uncomfortably, like even a mediocre college hitter. 89 is something he sees all the time, right? They'll, they'll be able to get to those. And these poor kids were cutting through it like he was throwing 97. And so he, I liked him even for what he was. I was My thought at the time was, well, even if this is all he really is, not realizing he'd had mono and, and lost some strength, thinking he's got three weapons. He was three at the time. They're all at least average. And boy, hitters don't see the ball well out of his hands. Well, now, as you said, the stuff's all better. It's four pitches, really. And the velocity's been consistently better basically since his first full season in the minors. I'm not even trying to temper expectations unless people are thinking this is our number one starter for the next five years. I, d- I don't really think he's that, but you're never going to be unhappy with him. I think he's going to be really good. He could be one of those, hey, he's, he's really not an ace on a lot of teams, but he's the Mariners all-star in certain years because he's just that good. He's because he's the most valuable pitcher on the staff or because he gets to the all-star break and he's got, he's leading the league in innings and is up there in pitcher wins because he's just so steady and consistent. I think a lot of this sort of depends on where you draw the boundaries of what makes an ace. I mean, there aren't 30 aces in the big leagues, depending on how you define it, right? If there are 10 aces in the big leagues, then 20 teams don't have one at least. I've always said a good rule of thumb is 15. Right, because that's half. If you said half the major, half the teams in Major League Baseball would have aces. Now I understand they're not silly distributed. It's not one pre. God does not come down and put one ace on <laughs> half the teams. Right, and the Dodgers have five, and there's ten for everybody else. But if you think about it that way, it and it's not always going to be fifteen. Like you said, there could be years it's ten, there could be years it's twenty who we think meet this criterion. But to me, it's there should be about fifteen guys who you'd look at and say that's a number one starter on half the teams in baseball, right? Then that should add up to about 15 aces in a given year. And then I always said to, it's been a long time since I even wrote this, but I swear I did it. I mean, it might be eight to 10 years ago since I sort of laid this out on something over at ESPN. Think of it this way. There's about 15 aces. Then there should be about 30 guys behind them who are number two starters, which means they're kind of, there might be aces on certain teams, might be number one starters on some teams, but they're number two starters in just about every other team. And then there should be 30 guys who are number three starters. And so, and then of course there is a, you know, there could be a very large supply of fifth starters and there you could, I tend to describe guys as this guy's a fifth starter. This guy's a five, six, meaning he could be a fifth starter on some teams. He might be a swing man now. And there's some guys who are just six starters. He's an emergency depth guy. He should be there for you in AAA. Those buckets are fungible. Not everyone uses the terms the same way, and I recognize that that's a, you know that can be a problem with my own writing. But it is a, you know a bit of a function of how I was taught to think about and evaluate players, and I still find that rubric kind of useful, just in terms of you know hey one two three four five. Well, we know what those numbers mean. We may dispute what an actual number one starter looks like, but as long as we can agree that there say aren't thirty of them and there aren't five of them, right? There shouldn't be old man yells at cloud again. I remember Christy Matthewson <laughs> used to pitch and hawk up the guitar between <laughs> fadeaways. There should right, there should be some somewhere around a dozen to eighteen aces each year and work down from there. I hope that's a framework that most people can listen to and say, All right, that that kind of makes sense. That helps put these guys into general buckets. And to me, Gilbert is probably in the second group rather than being in the first group. I think that's a much safer place to put a pitcher coming up. It takes extraordinary stuff to assume someone's going to be a top 15 starting pitcher. So I wouldn't say this is a knock on Gilbert at all. 
I think back to Shane Bieber as a prospect, Keith. I mean, he he was one of those guys, I don't think anybody would have put him in the ace bucket that you just described. I think a lot of people saw him probably as a mid-rotation guy with really good command. I don't know if people said, yeah, the ceiling is future Cy Young winner. Like That's, that's what he's going to do. But my question for you, thinking about the odd trajectory of Bieber, I mean, people knew he had command and he had a deep mm-hmm. arsenal. And that's similar to what we have with Gilbert. If the flaw is maybe not having one absolute dominant with pitch, is that an acceptable flaw to have compared to having maybe two really nice whip pitches, but having fringy command? Like, Which of those problems are you more likely to accept? It's great that you brought that up because I had a conversation last night with a scout. We were talking about amateur players. And he said, essentially, their philosophy has come around a little bit to, you know, we can make guys throw harder. Mm-hmm. Like that's one thing most folks have tried to figure out. And, and you know, hats off to the guys over at Driveline too, who I think they're at the vanguard of this, of saying we can use science and evidence to help lots of pitchers throw harder. Now that has led to a proliferation of velocity and suddenly we're in this world where velocity by itself is really no longer enough. Uh, where I've got a high school kid on my draft rankings who throws 102 and he's not in my top 30, which would be the first round. So, and we, I mean, that, that can be a separate conversation. But the point is, to your question, you know, I whiffed on Shane Bieber, no pun intended, or maybe slightly intended. <laughs> but the problem with Bieber was he was a college guy who didn't throw that hard. He was just a finesse guy, you know, extreme finesse, and he, but he was through kind of average and he got stronger. And he threw, throws quite a bit harder. I think he's put on at least a full grade of fastball velocity since college. And first of all, all credit to him, obviously. But consider this. If if we are no longer at a point, now we're not even just projecting on high school kids who we all look look at all of those guys and say, well, he's, well, not the kid who throws under two, but everyone else, you're going to throw harder. You're going to get your man strength on you and you're going to throw harder someday. What if we should look at college guys like that now? Not everybody needs to throw harder, but we can look at a college guy and say he's got everything but the plus velocity. Are, are there maybe some elements here where we could coax two miles an hour more, three, four? You know, maybe that's what the discussion should be. How much harder can this guy throw if we get him into pro ball on our nutrition program, on our strength and conditioning program, and working with mechanics experts, whether it's driveline or somebody else, to help guys throw harder? And that, to me... I would have given you a different answer to that question five years ago. And now uh, I think that the answer would be, no, you can, you can give me that guy who's got command. He's got some secondaries, but maybe nothing's a knockout because you know what? If he throws harder too, we all often think too much about, well, if he throws harder, the fastball gets better. But you know, if you've got better arm speed, your slider might be a lot better. And if your fastball is harder, but you still have good feel for a changeup, you increase the separation between the two pitches and maybe both pitches play up because you've got the better arm speed and the better velocity. It's more than just saying, well, now you throw 96 instead of 92 and I change one grade. You could, not always, but you could change many things on the scouting report. And I believe that is true for Bieber, who did all of this and didn't lose an iota of command too, which is all the more impressive to add that much arm speed, to throw that much harder and still be the command guy that he, that he has become the last two years. A lot of ways I could kind of spin off that because it has my mind going a lot of different directions. I mean, I think about something like Robbie Ray suddenly being able to throw strikes after all these years this year as an yes. amazing development, which I mean, is great. I can't believe what I'm seeing because I thought after five ish years of walking a lot of guys and 
piling up strikeouts while doing it. I just thought, okay, that's who Robbie Ray is. I didn't know you could improve your control that much at this stage of his career. I mean, there are so many fascinating development twists and turns here. Uh, I think what really hit me, though, is thinking about a guy like Bieber, you would think on a college arm in particular, Mm -hmm. you're not adding as much strength to someone like that because they are older. They have been in the weight room in most cases. It's almost as though if you're looking for someone who can get a lot better, you need to find someone who hasn't already done all those things, hasn't already hit the nutrition, the weighted balls, all the different things that can make a pitcher better, right? I think we're going to have younger and younger pitchers trying to add as much velo as possible and trying to mimic what they're seeing in player development. That's going to happen at younger ages for a lot of kids that want to play. It's not going to happen for all kids who want to play. And if you keep shrinking scouting departments, you're going to have a hard time finding the kids who actually have that projection because they weren't exposed to all the technology and all the new training methods when they were younger. The one thing, I'll give you a note of, of pessimism, but follow with a, a note of optimism here. The, the pessimism is, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of kids out there who are going to you know, private coaches or private facilities. A lot of them are, you know, I would think of a lot of them as just driveline knockoffs uh, where it's just, we're just going to get you to throw as hard as possible because that'll get you a college scholarship or it'll get you paid by Major League Baseball. And that, by the way, that latter statement is not wrong. They are not wrong to say that if you throw harder, you, you yeah. Yeah, you'll get more attention from college coaches and or from pro scouts. That That is accurate. Um, but I don't think that's good. Certainly, that's that that poses two problems for me. One is you're just going to get a lot of kids hurt from trying to throw as hard as they can, as often as they can. Because the research that I've seen, at least, that is public does indicate that throwing a lot at the maximum end of your, you know, your own personal velocity range is probably not good for the health of your elbow. Uh and who knows what else, but probably not good for your shoulder either. Also, it doesn't develop you as a pitcher, right? And, it's, and that, that is what we really want here is pitchers who, who can do more than just pitch with their fastballs. Major League pitchers are throwing fewer fastballs than ever as a percentage of what they throw in total. So clearly, at the Major League level, velo isn't the answer. So why would we just chase velo at the amateur level? The reason I have some optimism, though, is that there are plenty of people out there within major league scouting to play amateur scouting departments, the teams that still have them. And there are groups on the outside too, other organizations and, and individual coaches who are saying, no, we're not just chasing velocity here. We're not just going to push velocity here. We're going to develop you as develop you as a complete pitcher and also let nature kind of run its course a bit. And that as you get thinking particularly more for high school kids too, as you just get older and bigger, you will, you will naturally get bigger. You will naturally get stronger. You'll be able to put on and hold more muscle and you will, you will naturally develop some additional velocity or, or the ability to hold velocity deeper into games. And I know plenty of people who are preaching the opposite of just throw hard as hard as you can all the time, whether it's because they believe it's that gets kids hurt or they just believe that's not the formula for success. There are people who are I would say they're still contrarian relative to the rest of the industry, but I, I also happen to think they're right and that I think the the kids who come up through those channels are going to have success and then more people will look to those those channels, those programs and say, oh, maybe we shouldn't just be going for the kids who are throwing hardest. We should go to kids who've developed more as pitchers and that means maybe going to these different sources, these travel teams, these showcases, these development academies that are churning out a different style of pitcher. Yeah, it just seems like we're at a, a crossroads in terms of how pitchers are developed. And I think a lot of this conversation kind of hints at the different ways you can get to that. 
higher end sort of outcome that maybe in the past we just would have assumed you couldn't reach the levels of some mm-hmm. of the guys that we've been talking about. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about the Twins for a bit. A lot going wrong in Minnesota. They entered Thursday 10 games under 500. Playoff odds still sitting at 14.8%, according to Fangraphs. Uh, lower than Twins fans would have hoped for this point in May, but hey, they're not dead yet. Uh, Byron Buxton down right now with a grade 2 hip strain, which is really frustrating because, of course, he's had the accident-type injuries and the kind of chronic-type things like this that have slowed him down over his career, but he was really taking that step to an MVP sort of foundation for the start of his season. They've had to bring up Trevor Larnack because Alex Kirilov went down too, and he was making a ton of hard contact before he got hurt. They sent him to see a wrist specialist last week in Ohio. So things are not going well through the first six weeks in Minnesota. Can they turn this around? You start to look at the depth they have and and having a guy like Larnack to call up and maybe help bridge the gap until Kirilov gets back and maybe he sticks and finds a way to hang around a bit longer. Like, How do you see the Twins holding it together, especially in a year where they lost Royce Lewis prior to the season. I mean, it seems like the biggest problem for them, and I'm not, this is not any great insight, but is that they're pitching. Their pitching has completely let them down. Um, I shouldn't say completely. They've had a couple, Pineda and Berrios are, are pitching very well, but by and large, the pitching staff has been not good. They're allowing a ton of runs. Um, and and a little bit of that is the defense, but I would I would say primarily the run prevention problem is a pitching problem. And on the one hand, what are we, 20% of the way into the season? Plenty of time for any team to turn around. Nobody's buried yet. Uh, not with not with this many games left in the schedule. But I also look at the Twins pitching staff and think, okay, I'm not entirely sure where the improvement comes from either. I don't see... I'm looking at it right now. What, Which of these pitchers do I think is going to be markedly better? Maybe you could see Kenta Maeda pitching a little bit better going forward, but I also could argue anything he gives you, maybe Pineda gives a little bit back. And it may be just that they don't have the right personnel and that I don't think they have the guys necessarily. You know, I like Yohan Duran. I like Jordan Balazovic. I don't know that either of those guys is coming up this year and going to be the solution to the problem. I I like them both quite a bit. I I shouldn't mean to sound like I'm denigrating them, but neither one of those guys was supposed to be banging on the door this year to take a rotation spot. And so if I'm in that twins front office, I'm not quite sure what I do. Do I wait with the guys, the roster I put together and hope that on balance, they start pitching better. Uh, Even though, as you said, they lost Byron Buxton, who's a tremendous defensive player and a huge part of their, run prevention 
do I push one of those prospects up to the big leagues and figure, well, you know, he might be better than Matt Shoemaker, who's their worst starter now. And it's not just his ERA, just everything about his performance this year through six starts says, no, he's probably not going to be good enough to be a, a starter for them going forward. Or do I look externally? My guess is the answer is probably to look externally at some point. And then you just hope that you don't fall so far behind by, say, the middle of June, where you know the trade market starts opening up. But by that point, maybe you've already got too much of a deficit to overcome. And especially you know, too much of a deficit to overcome when all you're pr- probably doing is adding one starting pitcher. They're, they're in a... They're, Nothing is insurmountable at this date in the calendar. I also don't see an easy solution to where they are in terms of their roster and their run prevention. Uh, the players responsible for their run prevention or, shall I say, non-prevention so far this year. Yeah, I mean, you look at the staff as a whole. I think Jay Happ is showing signs of being 38. Yeah, like that's he is what he what's is. going to happen. Eventually, your, your back-end veterans just aren't effective anymore. I think Maeda is the most troubling case because the strikeout rate is way down. And I think even when even when Maeda in the past hasn't delivered ratios that look like what we saw in the shortened season, no one was expecting him to repeat that. He, he still missed a lot of bats. Struck out a ton of righties, especially. Just nasty against righties. Mm-hmm. To see the K rate down and the home run rate up, that gives me some pause sure. like in, in terms of just the magnitude of the bounce back I'm expecting. If you told me rest of season Maeda pitches to a four ERA, I think that's actually a good outcome for the Twins based on what we're seeing early on and just based on the past track record. I mean, in 2017 and 2019, this is a guy that finished an ERA just above four for the Dodgers, and they were managing him as carefully and effectively as you can possibly manage him. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that you know, a lot of pitchers who come out of NPB as well have, you know, their track record here of just in terms of durability has not been great, probably because they just pitch more over there or because the shift from throwing every sixth day to every fifth day over here uh, is, I mean, that's that would be a huge ask of anybody. It's hard enough. We ask kids to go from pitching once a week in college to going to pitching every five days in pro ball. And a lot of kids do struggle with that as well. So and Maeda has had what is he at five? If you count last year as a full season, that's five pretty productive years so far. Uh, pitching in Major League Baseball through age 32, it's possible that he's now at a point where, you know, unfortunately, things are, you know, things just age, just age and workload are maybe just starting to catch up with him a little bit. And he's not going to be as effective going forward. It's not to say he hasn't had a great career, but maybe he's, maybe at 33, he's just, no longer a number two slash three starter. Maybe he's more like a fifth starter and Shoemaker is less than a fifth starter. And then you just end up in that situation I was trying, maybe not particularly well to describe, which is sort of, okay, now now what do you do? You need another starter from somewhere. And I'm not really quite sure where, where he comes from. I think with the injuries to the core, especially justifying making those moves this year in particular might be more difficult if they don't start making up some of that mm-hmm. ground soon. Uh, with Larnack, I mean, I, I think he was going to see the big leagues at some point this year. I think the injuries just made it happen a little bit earlier than planned. What do you see in him as a hitter long term? Do you see a, a clear cut guy that hits enough to stay as a, at least a big side platoon guy in an outfield corner? I think a regular. I think they got a regular there. Um, I know that there are people who think he's going to be a star because of his bat. Um, I've always had concerns when he was back at Oregon State that the report was he just didn't pull the ball. Everything was the other way, the other way, the other way. And could he consistently pull, especially Major League Velocity? He's going to see a lot of it. And 
know, he's had one hit so far. I believe his one hit was on a fastball in the inner half, so that's great to see. Uh, if he starts to do that consistently, then maybe he's more than just an everyday player. But I do think he's got the combination, enough of a combination of hit on base power to profile as an everyday player in a major league, in a, in a corner outfield spot for some major league team. Now, they've got lots of options, and I know they love Larnack internally so maybe they just decide they're going to give one spot to him but then you start to add up all their outfielders and maybe there's not enough space for everybody and i don't know how they resolve that it's a great problem to have maybe larnack ends up somebody that they trade away to try to go get some pitching um not because they don't like him but because they have other guys and decide that they uh they want to convert some of that outfield surplus into into some pitching but just in the case of larnack specifically i'm in i think he's an everyday player uh, i think the only dispute i might have with some other evaluators and certainly with the twins specifically is I don't know that I think he's a star. I just think he's a really solid everyday player. Could also see them finding a way to part ways with Miguel Sano mm. at some point. Like what more do they need to see from yeah. him? Like there's no defensive value at his absolute best. You're talking about a 340, 350 OBP with power, but with the defensive limitations, if you get rid of him, especially if you trade him this summer, mm-hmm. you can play one of those guys at first base and you can fit everybody else in the outfield. That's actually a great. That's a great point, right? Because you want to get Carroll off uh, when he's when he's healthy. You want Carroll off to play regularly. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Larnack has to play regularly. Karoloff has to play regularly. Obviously, Buxton, when he comes back, is going to play regularly, and you know, as long as he's healthy and able to do so. And Kepler now Kepler's off to a rough start, but he's been one of their better players too. Okay, let's well, four guys. That's that's four guys. You could put one of them at first base and then every assuming that they want to keep Karoloff and Larnack in the big leagues, there's always a chance they decide to send one of them back down. But uh, you know, maybe that's the best option. As you said, Sano is 28. This is probably who he is. And and also I I at some point the fact that there's been it's not even just that there's no defensive value. It's it seemed for quite some time there's not really any work on it either. That there's he's not going to put in effort to improve defensively. That is his choice, but it would also be sort of my choice to you know if I'm in the Twins front office to say let's get somebody who's over at first base who's going to work on being a better defense better defensive first baseman that might help our other infielders that might help make our pitching staff better. Yeah, I think that's the point we're we're approaching with Miguel Sano. I want to talk about another prospect that came up this week, definitely overshadowed by the call-ups in Seattle. It's Khalil Lee getting his first opportunity in the big leagues. It's probably temporary with the Mets. they got a few injuries in the outfield. Brandon Nimmo's close to returning. I think once Nimmo comes back, Khalil Lee goes back down. I know Lee wasn't in your last top 100, so I was looking at the the Mets write-ups that you had back during the winter, and he seems like a guy who's very toolsy, mm-hmm. but it's a question of whether or not he's actually going to turn those tools into consistent production at the highest level. And he walks a lot, which is a good and a bad thing in this case. Uh, you mentioned Nimmo. They kind of do have that in common. There's quite a bit of, and the Mets have a few hitters uh, who've got excellent patience. In Lee's case, though, I, I saw quite a bit of him when he was in Wilmington when he had his breakout year back in 2018, and then saw a little bit of him you know, in 2019. And and I do I like Khalili quite a bit as a prospect. There's uh there's quite a bit of speed. I think there's a little more pop than even his minor league numbers might indicate from the last couple of seasons. Uh, and he can really throw. He is almost too a little too passive at the plate, almost a little too comfortable hitting with two strikes. And I would like to see him 
ambushing stuff a little earlier in the count because he can I think he can hit okay you know and it's just obviously it was a tiny sample here six games in triple a but I like the fact that in 28 or so, so oh no I'm sorry 23 plate appearances it's five walks six strikeouts I am not trying to overread into a tiny stat line here but just the fact that those two are a little bit more in line here the problem I saw with him prior to the pandemic was a guy who would you know, it was almost like he was looking for the perfect pitch, looking, looking, then it's two strikes, and then, okay, now I swing. Now I go after something. Well, by that point, you might have missed your pitch because you were looking for the for the perfect pitch. Um, he was young enough. He was really pretty. He was only 21 in double A. He was absolutely young enough to improve. And the fact that he had the eye to get to those, to get deep into the count in the first place and to draw plenty of walks in addition to those strikeouts uh, was very promising. He can really run. I like his chances to be pretty good in center. I, I, he's a pretty good prospect and he, he was on my top 100 at one point, but then he struggled so much with contact when he got to double a. And with that, he lost some of the power that he'd shown the previous two seasons in a ball. And I said, all right, maybe I was just a little bit ahead of this one. I would love to see, maybe you're right. Maybe he goes back down to triple a, but the thing I would keep an eye on him on with him, whether he's in the majors or in AAA, it's not even just the walks and the strikeouts, but what, what kind of counts is he getting into? Is he falling into a lot of two-strike counts and then sort of in survival mode? Because if he's attacking a little bit earlier, I think you're going to see all of his numbers improve. Yeah, for a lot of us who have a strong interest in prospects, we don't get a chance to watch guys before they get to the big leagues. Maybe we're lucky enough to see them in the fall league or they happen to come through where we live and we see them in a minor league game and we get a really limited look. I think it's easy to look at a strikeout rate and assume that a player has a flawed hit tool. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sounds like that's not necessarily the case, where you could look at a guy like Khalil Lee and say, yeah, the strikeout rates were pretty high in the upper levels of the minor leagues, but there's actually a chance that by changing his approach, by being more aggressive early in counts, that he could actually bring that number down a little bit over time, even against more advanced pitching. No, it's a great point. I mean, I often... Uh, refer somewhat sardonically to people who are scouting the stat line. And the truth is you know, two different hitters can have the same strikeout rate and get there in very different ways. Some guys just, some guys are there because they can't hit. Some guys can't hit at all. Some guys can't hit certain pitch types. You know, sometimes there is, there's a weakness or maybe more than one vulnerability that opposing pitchers will attack. Teams even know in the minors, word gets around pretty quickly. If you can't hit pitch X in location Y, people are going to find out about it pretty quickly. But a lot of times those hitters do get in, do rack up some more strikeouts maybe because they're too passive uh, or because they're comfortable getting to two strikes, but they haven't developed the two-strike approach yet to be able to keep the strikeouts down. Uh, or maybe they are comfortable. George Springer is a guy who actually dinged in college. The main thing was he had no two-strike approach, or I think I joked his two-strike approach was swing harder. And he's really never quite gotten out of that, but because he hits the ball enough, hard enough in those counts, he can work. He, he it can work. He can strike out a lot and still be a pretty valuable player. Obviously, the game has changed too, but I, I try to be very open-minded with players unless their strikeout rate is just exorbitant to think, all right, how is the player getting to that strikeout rate? And are those things that, are those adjustments that the player can make? Is the player showing me he can make adjustments? There's a player in this year's draft class at University of Florida. He's on my top 100, uh, somewhere in the 50s, Judd Fabian, who if we were just drafting off tools, he'd probably go in the first round. But he strikes out a lot and there's just not a lot of adjustments going on. If he if he would show he could make some adjustments and close up some of those vulnerabilities, 
scouts would view him very differently. I would view him very differently because I think his future would be different. But until you make those adjustments, then I think there's lots of reason for everyone to be skeptical. So this actually overlaps nicely with something I want to talk about with you as kind of part of a rookie check-in. Mm-hmm. Randy Arozarena appears to be going through an early adjustment phase, which is not a surprise given how little time he's spent in the big leagues. He's striking out 32.2% of the time. And I noticed that he is near the bottom among qualified hitters in zone contact percentage, which does seem like a legitimate problematic flaw for a player. George Springer, coincidentally, is a guy that I look back at the last 12 years, went back to 2010. I was looking for anybody who had like a 70-ish percent zone contact percentage who wanted to become a good player. Mm -hmm. George Springer is pretty much the only player who's done it where he made significant adjustments. And he, he had that reputation coming into the league, a clear three true outcome sort of player with power. And the reason I found Springer, I was trying to figure out, okay, like, is there any hope for a guy like Keston Hira who just got completely lost and sent down to begin the season? So I kind of found a Rosarena by accident, landed on Springer as a, okay, that sort of makes sense. I mean, Hira's got some similarities to him as a hitter, a college bat, right-hander with power, legitimate power to all fields. And when you watch Keston Hira, his bats lately have been brutal. Uh, but when you've watched him over the years, he hits the ball everywhere. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to rectify that there could be a hitter with a spray chart with balls everywhere on the field who could actually be a bad hitter. That just doesn't make sense in my mind. Yeah, I feel like in Hira's case too, I don't know, you've probably seen him more than I have. I should really defer to you. But my sense with him, he was always, forgive me, we may have even talked about this before, but when he was in college and in the low minors, was like, no, this, he just hits. He is a hitter first. There'll be some power. And it seemed like in the last two years or so, somewhere in there, Somebody, maybe it was just him, decided to go for more power, to actually change the approach, change the swing to try to get to more power. And I think it's just cost him everything, ultimately. Not only he's gotten to some of the power over the last couple of years, but it's cost him so much contact. And and I don't know how you recover from that. I, I actually don't. like. I, I know that the Phillies are going through this a bit with Scott Kingery as well, who you know, I think, again, there was an attempt to monkey with his swing and try to get him to, you know, he did have the big home run year in double a Reading, which is a tremendous home run park too, which probably skewed the numbers and Kingery you know, had some early. Okay. Success in the big leagues, some moderate success, but has never really quite recovered from what I see. <clears throat> what I, in that case, I can testify to, you know, I've seen it, attempts to change his swing to make him into a, something of a different hitter. I don't think that's the case in a Rose with Rosarena. I think that Maybe it's just a matter of now. It's funny because I talked to people last fall on opposing teams. They said, yeah, if you figure out a way to get this guy out, could you let us know? <laughs> um, and yet it does seem like they found ways to get him out, not just by missing bats in the zone, missing his bat in the zone. But when he is swinging and making contact, he's not getting the ball in the air uh, uh, or as consistently in the, on a, you know, kind of a, on a line or even a sort of enough of a fly ball to put the ball in the seats with the same kind of consistency. He's hitting the ball on the ground or on a sort of on a flat plane a lot more often this year. And I, I'm going to assume without going pitch by pitch through his season that those two things are connected, that this is all probably part of an overall plan to pitch to him and is going to require him now to make an adjustment back. Yeah, I mean, he had a, a 60% ground ball rate so far this season, 56.3 mm-hmm. when he arrived in St. Louis in 2019, cut that to 46.5 in the limited time that we saw him last year. So he's been all over the place so far. And that was one of the big knocks I had. I remember talking to you a 
couple of raised people at the time they got him. And they're like, we think he makes a ton of hard contact that there's going to be more power in there. And my thought was, this guy hits the ball on the ground a lot. Now, some of those guys, Vlad Jr. hit the ball on the ground a ton for two years. And then and Blue Jays people say it's not that we didn't like work with him and redesign his swing. He just kind of got to it. He clicked for him. Now he's putting the ball in the air a lot more and he's a much better player. Uh, you know, it's interesting that a Rosarena could make that adjustment, get the ball in the air a good bit more especially for two months last year, and now may have reverted back to the hitter that he was previously. I don't know. I'm sure there's precedence. I can't immediately think of one of another player who went through that kind of up and down with the type of hitter, type, type of hitter he is, type of contact he's making. Yeah. I mean, I just think this is these are the ebbs and flows of a young hitter finding mm-hmm. his way and having the league adjust to him, and he's just forced to adjust back. And how much he's able to do uh, and how quickly he's able to do it really shapes what this 2021 season is going to look like. I mean, it works well for him. He still draws walks. Uh, The strikeout rate is tolerable in the low 30% range. So Mm -hmm. he's got a little bit of buffer there. But if it gets bad enough, they've got enough depth. They could give him a brief trip back to AAA. I don't think we're at that point yet, but you can't rule it out. You can't Mm -hmm. rule it out as something that could happen down the road. Yeah, I think it would take a lot for them to send him down. Also, because the optics would be... Right. I mean, even thinking just within your own clubhouse, your coaching staff, you know, this guy was, you know, he was Babe Ruth. He was Barry Bonds last October. You probably give that guy more time to write the ship. Yeah, absolutely. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about a couple other rookies that have really stood out. One on the mound, Kwang Young Kim in St. Louis, building on that strong 2020 debut, sitting at a 202 ERA now for 62 innings in St. Louis. I can't figure out how he's pulling this off because everything I heard about him before the Cardinals signed him was that he's probably more of a swingman back end sort of starter. I know it's too early to say he's a lot more than that, but have you come away impressed by what you've seen from Kim to this point? Um, I'm inclined to chalk a bit of it up to a small sample. I will say they've had some, you know, I think of Miles Mikolas who got, they got one year out of him that was a lot better than what folks expected. And then since then, I think he's kind of gone back to, uh, a little bit more in line with expectations from before he first signed with the Cardinals. But I, uh, you know, even just glancing a little bit at some of Kim's numbers here, 
I'm not sure why I would buy into this substantial of an improvement from him unless I see it over a longer period of time. Because it doesn't seem like the stuff is different. It doesn't seem like the uh, there's anything in the underlying numbers here that would make me think he was a much better or different pitcher than he was, say, even last year. Yeah, that's, that's why I keep sitting with him, too. I'm like, why? how, how is he doing this? It's a complete <laughs> mystery. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, though, also in the NL Central, Adbert Elzelay has lowered his walk rate. He was at 14.9% in the shortened season. He's cut it down to 5.7% to begin 2021. It's a pretty big development for the Cubs if he can hold that sort of improved control. Still has a bit of a home run issue, but he misses a lot of bats. And this is an organization that desperately needed to develop a young starter. And it looks like they've successfully done that, or at least they're very close. Yeah, and I like, I've always liked Alzale with some reservations. It's it's a really good arm. He can show you, sometimes he can show you two good pitches. Every once in a while, he'll actually th- show you three pretty good pitches. Um, the problem he has run into it, it's twofold, but a point it ends up in the same place. One is that he is he's listed at six one. I might take the under on that. <laughs> and it's always come out a little flat for me. And I it doesn't seem like the kind of fastball that's gonna miss a ton of bats at the top of the zone, especially against lefties, which was his when he first emerged as a prospect, he was basically just fastball breaking ball. And the question was then, how's the third is there gonna be enough of a third pitch? Sometimes he will show you a changeup that's pretty good. He can miss some left-handed batters bats. But if you look, he's given up see you mentioned the home run problem. He's given up six homers so far this year in six games, five of them against lefties. I know it's a small sample. I also happen to think that's not a coincidence. I think the problem for him is going to be uh, that that is the problem he's going to have to address. And some of it is kind of innate in that, that look, given his size, his fastball, the way it comes out, the plane on the pitch, lefties are going to be able to elevate it pretty easily. And he's going to have to locate it better or work away, work with other pitches to throw fewer fastballs to lefties to be able to get out of that problem. If he can do that because he throws a ton of strikes, I think he can miss enough bats for uh, and miss enough left-handers bats. We know he can miss right-handers bats. They got a chance at a, maybe a league average starter there. If he doesn't, I'm not quite sure what you have. He might fall more into the swingman trap because teams are just going to load lefty, load up lineups with lefties against him. They've done so this year. He's actually had more plate appearances against left-handed batters this year than against right-handers. So teams are obviously figuring out he does have this weakness. And probably something gets exploited even more outside of Wrigley, right? Most days at Wrigley, you get the wind blowing in. That might help you out a little bit with a flaw like Mm -hmm. the one Alzali has. But send him on the road where the ball flies a little better, and there could be some problems, as you suggested. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get an updated top 100 list for the upcoming MLB draft. And a new number one. You've been on the road. You had a chance to see... Some of the things you wanted to see, but not everything that you wanted to see in Nashville last weekend. So what's the big change up top? Well, so the reason for the big change, I went to Nashville and there's a post, there was a post up on Sunday, I believe, about this. So I saw Kumar Rocker on Friday night for two innings. He looked like Cy Young. And then after that, he just kind of fell apart. And for three, for two innings, he was the best. You'd think this guy's going to go number one. And then three innings after, three innings after that, he, he walked five including walking three guys after the team had reclaimed the lead for him. Uh, he got hit around. His stuff was not as crisp. His command was not as crisp. And I sort of throw up my hands a little bit. I, I looked the raw ingredients here are pretty good, but you got to perform a little better than that. That wasn't the worst thing of the weekend, though. The next day, I was already there. And that morning, Saturday morning, Vanderbilt sends out an email. Jack Leiter's not going to pitch today. We're just monitoring his innings. Nothing's really wrong right now. Okay. 
I don't exactly know what's going on, but I can't put that guy first on my rankings. I almost wish I could have just, just like called Emma, my editor, and said, can I get another week? Can we just see if lighter pitches <laughs> next so I can sort of kick the can down the road a little bit? Didn't didn't ask. I can't even blame Emma. Maybe she would have said yes, but I, I didn't ask. And so I put Henry Davis of Louisville uh, at f- first, and then the two high school shortstops, Jordan Lawler and, and Marcelo Mayer, at two and three, and pushed both Vandy guys down to four and five, rocker four, lighter five, to reflect the fact that, one, I, I'm a big Henry Davis guy, and I think the industry might even be underrating him a little bit. He's a catcher with power, gets on base, and can really throw. I'm not sure what is to not like there. And those two high school shortstops are, are really interesting, high upside guys. I'm I'm fine with any of those three guys really going one at this point. But Rocker is so inconsistent. And with Lighter, now we just have to see him pitch. He didn't pitch well his two outings before the missed start. So... Lots of folks are saying, I mean, I have people texting me, Do you, have you heard what's really going on? Do you know what's going on? Truth is, I don't know anything more than what was in the email, but I will tell you, I really want to see him pitch. And I want to see that everything's okay. I want to see that there's nothing to worry about here and that he could really be, he was my number one prospect, my first two rankings this spring. I just moved him down because of all the uncertainty of what's going on right now. And I, I hope that it's nothing and he returns to form, but it has definitely thrown a wrench into any attempts to talk about what's going to happen at the very top of the draft. Yeah, and if it's some kind of injury, hopefully it's just something, you know, like a hamstring strain sure. or something relatively minor that he yeah. can come back from, you know, and, and look like himself prior yeah. to the hey, end of the season. Just tell us. Absolutely. Yeah. Jack's feeling his lower back's a little sore or something. You know what? Hey, maybe he got his second COVID shot and was a little under the weather the next day. I had one day where I was kind of down. Uh, I bounced back. I'm sure he could too. He's a little younger <laughs> than I am. But there's lots of perfectly valid reasons for a kid to miss a start you know telling people i trust me i got an email from a scout who just gotten off a plane that morning because he was there to see lighter and then he found out lighter wasn't pitching you got to give folks some notice on this especially if you knew ahead of time if you're monitoring his innings you got to tell us we'll all come back and see him again if that's all that's if that is all that's really going on trust me it's jack lighter people are going to come see him yeah, people who went to see Lighter and didn't get to see him could have gone somewhere else. I think that's the the key there too, right? I mean, it's missed mm-hmm. opportunity. The season's only so long. There's only so many opportunities yep. you have to get and out. We are running out of running out of Saturdays in his case. I was going to say Fridays at first, but Rocker pitches Fridays, Lighter pitches Saturdays. We are rapidly running out of schedule for the college guys. Yeah, I love Nashville, but if I went to Nashville to see Jack Lighter and he didn't pitch, I'd be pretty upset. A little disappointed. I consult myself with food. <laughs> easy to do in Nashville. And for anyone who's ever been there, plenty of good places to eat in Nashville. Well, that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. Before we go, I want to let you know if you want to check out Keith's updated Top 100 for the upcoming MLB Draft, you can do that at theathletic.com slash baseball show where you can get a three ninety nine a month subscription to The Athletic. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, we'd really appreciate that. If you've got a friend who would enjoy the show, let them know we're new. So we'd love to get some new listeners here as this show picks up some steam moving through the season. You can hear Keith on the Keith Law Show. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and our full suite of fantasy baseball shows on Twitter. He's at Keith Law. I'm at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.